Welcome to Authors Unbound, a podcast connecting passionate writers with passionate readers. I'm here today, as always, with my friend Peter Campion, and uh, our guest is uh, the writer Chris Campagnoni. Peter, how are you today? I'm doing really well. I'm so excited to talk with Chris because here is a writer who is totally hybrid. I would never know where to put this book in a bookstore, but it's definitely got to get to a bookstore because people are going to love it. It's so intellectually hefty and yet totally fluid in its movement, totally uh, physically there. You don't have to have a PhD to understand it. It's a bodily experience, this book. I was just going to say, I, I think I think you're absolutely right. You have to surrender to this book and just let it do what it's going to do. And it's this wonderful seduction on the page, and you're suddenly just tangled up in the sheets with it and enjoying every moment. You might not even quite know why, and you're clearly in the hands of somebody who loves language so much and makes it a really sensuous experience. That's for sure. Chris is such a great conversationalist. I know that I'm going to be writing down names of authors and books and probably movies too. Because of him, he's so widely read and so deeply steeped on so many fronts across culture. And he brings all of that to our conversation. You know, he reminds me of you, Peter. You and Chris have many things in common, which is this fantastic command of the lyrical, these incredibly incisive observations about daily life and culture. Uh, you both teach writing, and you're both brilliant writers. And at least one of you is is a sought-after male model. I'm not sure which one which one that is. is, is that I'm you? waiting for the call. I just keep waiting. You're ready. You're ready. It's it's your it's your age on the underwear box, right? That's right. <laughs> they say God doesn't give with both hands, but she did in the case of Chris Campagnoni. He's brilliant. And he's beautiful and he's uh, accomplished across the board, yet somehow accessible and humble and delightful to talk yeah, about. Yeah, and he has brilliant things to say about that part of his life. And uh, I can't wait to talk about it all. We're so excited to share that conversation with listeners today. Here's our chat with Chris Campagnoni on Authors Unbound. everybody, and welcome to Authors Unbound. I'm Patrick Davis, publisher and editor-in-chief at Unbound Edition Press. And I'm Peter Campion, executive editor at Unbound Edition Press. How are you doing today, Peter? I'm doing well. It's been snowing here for about three or four days, and I actually look out the window, Patrick, and think, oh, it's quaint. It's really pretty. It's so nice. But come back to me in two or three months and and ask how how the snow feels. It'll be different. Slush will be upon you. How about how's, how's everything there in Atlanta? Oh, it's bright and beautiful today, and I am filled with all kinds of hope for the state of the world because I got to spend yesterday rereading a fantastic book called A&B and Also Nothing. By Chris Campagnoni, who is our guest today. I've read that book. It is fantastic. It's going to be yeah. so much fun talking with Chris. And I can't wait. Yeah, I've so many. I just want to start asking questions. I've been writing them down, and Chris has been having some wonderfully interesting uh, and creative email exchanges with us about this book. And even those have got me thinking. Um, 
This yeah. is a writer who has a lot of range too. I mean, it seems like Chris publishes an academic article about like twice a week, once one a month. And yes. uh, I don't know how he does it. We're excited to get to publish the second edition of A and B and also nothing at Unbound Edition Press. And Chris, you're in Brooklyn today where you uh, have told us you're playing uh, circus tennis. Yes, uh, it's very windy here. Uh, so you might hear some of that feedback. And I'm, I'm quite uh, jealous of the, the sunny and, and warm Atlanta environment that you're coming in from. Like Peter, I enjoy the first few gasps of, of winter. We're here for the long haul though, right? Yeah, well, sure. so long as, yeah, I guess we're gonna have increasing winters that maybe don't break <laughs> except for blistering heat. Chris, I was I was just um, talking with Patrick about um, this really cool email exchange the three of us have just had. And not only did you send us a, such an interesting paragraph about your conception of this book and its kind of modularity and the way it's changed and the way it changes when you, you give readings, but you also sent us an incredibly incredible section of you know three pages that um, to me read like a prose poem. And I wanted to ask you about that kind of um, second life that the book has. Yeah, again, I'm, I'm sort of fascinated by a lot of things. I'm thinking about preparation, thinking of the book as a recipe. One of the things that has always fascinated me, and, and I think A&B and Also Nothing was my first perhaps attempt at producing that across a book, is thinking about how I might pull uh, from other art forms, whether it was to think of myself as a DJ, as an architect, as a masseuse, as a chef de cuisine, as anything but a writer, and to pull those into the arts of the skin and flesh. Like, you know, how, how can I exceed or elide the visible and the audible within a text that is traditionally <laughs> so uh, visual and, and textual in the alphabetized text kind of way? And I think one of the things that it became apparent, I don't actually write it in this uh, book, I'm not that explicit, but I think in a sort of spiritual companion to A&B and Also Nothing, in which I try to actually translate or rewrite the 1959 film North by Northwest, I, I state it, that I'm no longer interested in writing books, but writing combinations. Thinking about the book as any number of possible combinations is, is kind of an explanation for, I think, one of the, the great joys in not just reading and rereading uh, a and B and also nothing, but in fact, um, preparing excerpts for live readings, whether those readings take place on Zoom or if they're for an occasion such as today. Maybe we all might agree that that one thing we don't maybe often think about consciously is that a text is is in itself inherently a version of something else, right? And so one of the many things I think that I'm still interested in, and I, and I think really carries not just in the excerpt I prepared for today, but across the whole book, is pursuing a kind of a mode of art production that kind of tries to resist this fetishization of the original and, and to think about the functions, the, the agency, the afterlifes of even and especially um, copies. I think in, inspired by A and B and also nothing, you just said a text is a version and it seems like that's the exact type of backflip that you like doing on the page for listeners and those who've not yet read a and b is and and also nothing this work is literary criticism it's poetry it's autobiography it's fiction and it's walking the line between all of those and across all of those and it it's no one thing it is a and b and also nothing it is a straight line and a complete ellipses around all of these subjects 
as you're describing it, I'm I'm realizing there's a very particular mind at work here. Um, you say in the text that a beloved instructor complimented you on your fluency being one of your great strengths and that you hadn't thought of yourself as particularly fluent yet you were just referring to all of these territories that you that you cross with a passport that proves the fluency goes both broad and deep and and i'm i'm just curious sort of how do you translate across these different territories and come to some sense of a whole which the book absolutely is if it sounds random or stream of consciousness it's it's anything but that there is certainly a kind of uh, natural human intuitive sense to this book that for me I just sink into very immediately but you're never not in control of what's happening yet you're kind of welcoming the accidents and the illusions at the same time yeah thank you I mean part of that I think is the performance of staging accidents and glitch right staging discrepancy I think again one of the my many fascinations is sort of to attend to and, and even celebrate the stutters of form as a text is mediated and remediated and remediated again. Something, you know, in terms of information theory, like obviously something is degraded in a way with entropy, but something is also passed on that couldn't be done otherwise. Because it's even like registers of language, right? And voice. Sure. And I think one of the things that um, maybe I've been self-conscious of since since I joined like academia, which it seems like it, it's a cult and, and it is, so you have to join it, right? But si since I joined years ago, I think one of the things that I was self-conscious of was retaining the body, never forgetting about the body in all my many theoretical kind of postulations. And I think that's really come through. I didn't, I didn't know I would be so successful publishing, <laughs> not, not certainly not two articles a week, but it does seem at times like I shit them out. <laughs> and I think, you know, that's not a coincidence. Elegantly, either, by the way. Because <laughs> I, I think, you know, among the things that I'm also interested in A and B and also nothing is, again, to actually like harness the things that have been refused to me, right? And I think about refuse itself as a kind of possible uses for subjectivity. And I, you know, I, this idea about how to make it all work, how to throw up these many different balls that I'm juggling, you know, there's also the illusion of wholeness that I guess I, I play with. I am also interested in, in incompletion. I think the liminal qualities of the text that both of you have sort of described, uh, is it poetry? Is it auto theory? Is it, it's kind of, you know, among the, the things that I included for the excerpt for today, it's like, there is like a sort of joke moment in that. Is it a spy film? Is it a, you know, is it a translation? I wanted it to be published as a translation originally. I think it was published as nonfiction. But I think one of the things that I was really uh, pleased to see was that when the book did get published right around actually at the beginning of, of our pandemic, uh, it was named like one of seven Latinx poetry collections that, you know, redefined America for that moment. And I, I just love the idea of thinking of it as a poetry collection, because if it's not being sold as a combination, I still like to think of it as a collection, as a kind of, as a list um, that keeps growing. And one of the things that was apparent to me uh, working in the list form, and this is something that I encourage my students to work in, is that once you start working in the list form, whether or not you retain uh, any sort of itemization, whether letters or numbers, the text seems to sort of dictate itself to you and you're just kind of the secretary tasked with noting the coincidental residue. And among the things that I think I'm also interested in staging is, is interval, is coincidence. 
and I, again, I think a lot of influences have shaped that. I, I know I mentioned, I think, William S. Burroughs, who is really the Wild Boys, which I have in front of me here, is one of the probably the first book I read that in a way not only taught me to be a writer, but I understood that I could be a writer on the page. But thinking about like the sort of cut up technique and to continue to cut into a text in order to to like hone in on, on a detail, right? But that necessarily you're removing the whole. I think it's great if the, if the text seems whole, but I think it's also amazing. And I think it's maybe it was meant to be that Unbound Edition would publish the second edition of this book, whether or not I knew it when I when I made it, I think it was meant to be continued to cut into, whether by me or by by other writers, other readers. The different definitions of language and of writing that emerge across the text are fascinating to me. And you do work in the list form, but also in a very meditative and contemplative way. And I'm struck that at one point in the book, you describe language as a state of emergence, this sort of potentiality that's always unfolding. And then at another point, you say that what happens when you itemize things in a list, they become ordered and measured and accounted for, they become accountable, they become exact. And I'm interested in this kind of counterbalance between emergence and exactitude. Yeah, I think at the beginning of the book, I, I'm really only able to proceed, I'm only able to advance by, in that deconstructionist kind of way, playing with etymology and seeing how actually one thing can mean two seemingly opposite things. So I sure. think exact is a good example of that. And later on, I returned to that because I think, and again, one of the many things the list form allows you to do as a writer is like a jazz song. You kind of like, you have this like riff and then you move away and you return to a moment. And that's again, how you can stage a sort of interval in a text. But thinking about, I, I think passage that you um, were quoting from, I think another moment is thinking about how when you account for things, they, they become numberless, things that, that can actually be accounted for. And I'm also thinking about like that residue, like, you know, the qualities of whether it's the sonic qualities of things that actually can't be picked up, right, by technological mediation, or things that simply like, for someone who's so obsessed with copying things out, I'm also interested in the things I, I didn't decide to write down in that moment, right? But I still want to like value that, right? And I still want to speak to that. In a way, you're also kind of staging redaction because you're saying, I can't possibly tell you this, and yet you're telling it to the reader, right? You're confiding in them in that moment. And this is something that I that I do uh, still talk about with W, who I think, again, is kind of literally the initiator of the text as my instructor at the time, Wayne Kustenbaum. Something that I've talked with him a, a bunch, was, which is that this might be the first example of it in A and B and also nothing, but I think I'm only interested in whether or not I call them combinations, but like kind of writing in a sort of notebook poetics, right? Whether it's published in verse or published across the page as most of it is. And I think that's something that I had to learn uh, through. I had to externalize it. I had to manifest it in a text because it was something I have dealt with my entire life uh, in terms of like my uh, cultural upbringing growing up in a, a home that was always speaking three different languages and being so fascinated by language, I think primarily because I couldn't understand it. I wasn't fluent in any of the three languages. I, I think that's probably what actually made me a writer long before I came across the Wild Boys and William S. Burroughs. I love your description, Chris, of what's not in the text and how that informs the text. And it seems to me related to the wonderful 
bodily aspect of your work, which does save any of the very abstract and intellectual strands from ever seeming academic. And it also reminded me of a passage you sent us, which has really has an opening for an opening that it it begins with this imminent sex encounter of bodies opening to and entering one another it makes me think that your your work is really an erotics and you know a lot of people bandy around this term erotics of the text but this is one that's really doing it i was wondering if if this might be a good time to have you read for us a little bit sure yeah i'd love to um and just to say, too, I think as a preface to, to reading, I think one of the many writers that I've been influenced by, I don't know if you've read Manuel Puig, and there's a moment in, in The Great Kiss of the Spider Woman where the two prisoners, they're making love in, in darkness, total darkness. And, it, and there's this beautiful moment. It's transformative um, in which one of the inmates turns to the other and you know he's saying like, you know, for a moment, you know, I thought that I was you. There's this moment that's not at all parasitic but it is this idea of what I call in, in, in this text uh, a sort of desire for self-evacuation that I think that, yep. you know, sometimes you can only get out of the body through the body. And so I'll begin. This isn't fiction, but sometimes I'd rather tell you about my fantasies, things that are not fact but are not untrue. I like first dates because they permit us the excuse to reinvent ourselves. Sometimes I wonder how far I could go changing the permutation of muscles contracting across my face, or which leg I like to cross while sitting, and the amount of wonder I want to dole out on my mouth, and when. In an interview in Baum that followed the original publication of this book, I'm described as a pup, characterized by my readiness to leap and run and frisk and never regret. It's true that I want to ride language without any desire for linguistic cooperation. It's true that I'm a pup, if I'm anything elastic, reversible, ageless, but for my overused eyes and worn out mask, like all the invulnerable beauties who desire to nevertheless recede from view. You know what I am, even if you remain to feign ignorance. P wanted me to write a book about beauty, or more specifically about the way people look at me, or the way I'm seen, or none of the above, all of the above. I think I replied by saying, I've been writing this book my whole life. But to be inside a desiring ass, to rock in time with its desirous movements, seems almost tectonic, folding increasingly until I become nothing, nothing but nothing, a speck of dust, a blur of shit on the sidewalk, disintegrating inside another body or the other way around, opening me as if a trapdoor in the floor, where I can surrender my desire to self-evacuate. Banned from the abbey on account of my legs, I lay face up and splayed each trunk between a field of lavender. Want to parse the difference between being had and being taken. A sign on the stair says, let's learn to be completely and utterly our own. Belated overture, imbibe essence of performance without the performance taking place, objects without speech. The disciplining of time like color, Presentation of the child at the temple, montage of people radiating joy taken from magazines and inserted into the surroundings of each building, the story of how they initially forbid him from the avant-garde collective on account of his proletarian face, etc. What stands out is the impossible twisting of the executioner's picaresque figure. I wish an image could relate that. 
but also maybe what we call the power of any image relies on its limitations. The pleasure of recollection, accommodations of a smile, leaning into lust, requesting flesh and not looking away. There is a garden in front of the museum. Repeat after me. Originally, these sequences were assembled in another order. Originally, the room in which we are each listening was different. The city has changed too, unless it's only the scenery. Set designers scurry across a darkened stage. Mother speaks of the boy who rubbed his eyes out, so oppressed was he by images. The electricity of narrative when it doesn't yet know what it is, or even that it is. If I wanted to write a book about the experience of reading, these ripples might gesture toward the experience of revisiting what one has read from memory or confused from memory, passed down in spurts as major motion picture folklore or a dream I never had, seen twice or not at all. Like any good repetition, I am doing this by heart. As we move toward oblivion, we count backward. Fiction as transformation of the raw material, nonfiction as proximity to the event. I don't often have to remind myself to be always writing somewhere in between. True story. When I first met W, I copied out 16 of the same text, one for each of us, because I'd misunderstood the instructions. I transcribed an electric original by hand. Each of the 16 copies looks slightly different than the source text from which they all derived. I'm interested in pursuing the copies that have no original, a series of originals without copies. Whatever is written down, I read out loud, and whatever I hear, I write down. When I thought about sending this out, I thought about what my agent, if I had an agent, would say upon receipt. It's not creative nonfiction, they'd say, and it's not prose poetry, and it's not the lyric essay, and it's not memoir or diary, and it's not an autobiographical novel or a collection of documentarian reportage or a film score or a spy film, and it's not, not quite a translation. If it's not any of these things, they'd ask me, then what is it? Everything I hear, I write down, and everything I write down, I hear twice. And later, much later, there will be the journal version, the book version, the selected version, the collected version, all of them not replacing, but displacing the original, which is no longer here, no longer and not ever here. They'd ask me what I wanted, what I want right now. I'd say, I want a book with many exits. It reminds me that writing is a record of the persistently passing present as much as a relic from the future. What I want to look for is the moment each slips into the other. I wanted a more exciting life, so I began keeping a notebook. The notebook could make my life more readable rather than the other way around. In these, as in all scenarios, I don't have a life so much as I have reproduced it. And it's the copying out that matters. In this way, I become nothing but myself, and I needed to imitate myself to better become who I am. If unable to locate the transitional moment, assume the existence of a missing link like the synonym which seeks a destiny of its own. I like not knowing whose clothes I'm wearing. And at the back, a few feet from the sliding door that opens with a whistle and a hiss, the faint understanding that everything that was lost could be found again, would be found again, is found again. And that I could enter into my life the way I entered into a story or my notebook, which is the same thing. Divide the distance between time and space and merge the two, my past, my present without distinction, without the desire to identify, 
to indicate the difference. Thank you. What a reading, Chris. Wow. It's a mouthful. <laughs> I see what Wayne means by fluent, and I hear what he means when <laughs> when you read. It's and I love how you connected it earlier with your situation as a child and it doesn't feel at all cluttered. It moves, it flows. That was my experience, Peter, when I first read this book. And Chris, you, I think, said this kind of in our preamble conversation. It feels like once you start, you can't stop, that you're in the (laughs) flow of this book and you're all but obligated to live on its rhythms. And it feels very, one of Peter's favorite words, but I think it applies so much here. It feels very creaturely. It feels Mm. like there's this impulse to it that just kind of sweeps us away. And it feels incredibly intimate. It feels like we're reading and writing with you in this text. And and that intimacy is something that I think is part of the erotics that are being defined here. And they're not necessarily sexually overt, but it's very erotic as a text. And in terms of how we read and write and create something, the power of eros in, in creation, I think maybe is at least part of what's being performed here. There's another moment among other moments I could have chosen for this excerpt for today in which I talk about um, a desire to write a book as pure as talk. And so I think it's interesting to think about like, what does talk allow you to also bring into uh, a text that, you know, again, conventionally, traditionally, a text is something without any errors. It's been polished. It's been kind of, you know, hung on a wall if it's an object, right? And and we never get to see the insides, right? We We never get to see in that transparent way the sort of zigzags of consciousness that the author, artist, whatever medium they're working in kind of was thinking about and what they were reading and what they were watching and what they were listening to. I've always wanted to be as transparent as possible, not even just as a form of intimacy, but I think it also has a tendency to engender that kind of intimacy. One of the things that I was self-conscious of with this particular excerpt, I wanted to pay homage to not just the kind of things that that crossed my mind this past summer when I when I wrote the coda for Unbound Edition and included a, certainly quite a bit of that in the opening of this excerpt. But I also wanted to pay homage to the amazing The Experiment Will Not Be Bound anthology and the text that's actually referenced that I made 16 copies of for workshop. What is the text that is in that anthology. So thinking about non-sentient beings, right? Objects that we attribute a sort of identity and subjectivity to that, that nevertheless shape who we are as thinkers. There is a sort of a desire, I think, for readers to enter into the flow. I don't think too many texts give you, at least, you know, historically. And yet I think you can get toward that moment or that encounter with spectral and very physical audience members and readers by, I think, looking at what the notebook can do as a poetics, as an erotics, and as a practice of composition. The erotics of the notebook strike me as something that I could go back to graduate school for, just to explore that question as somebody who spent years deep in Thoreau's journals and notebooks. I'm reminded by Wayne Kustenbaum's discussion with me. I had the good fortune of interviewing him for Harvard Review. And while this didn't make that article, it was to me one of the more interesting things we spoke about regarding his trance notebooks, which number to 1500 plus pages. And he said really that Thoreau was his daddy, which is really quite masturbatory in many ways, just the self-pleasure of going through 
the daily documentation and mm-hmm. and the imaginings that that make up that notebook. And I wonder to what degree there's a much broader American genealogy here of the mm-hmm. erotics of the notebook that is worth exploring. Yeah, and you know, I think the person that I, I came to my mind is is not American, but yeah, certainly. And I think one of the things about Thoreau that's so interesting and not at all coincidental, at least as it perhaps even is surfaces in ways in A and B and also nothing, is this also desire of Thoreau to walk. And he's always walking, yes. right? And so this movement to be constantly in movement. And again, I, I like the sort of polyglossia of not knowing who's speaking often, like who's the speaker. I actually don't want to know. I like to confuse and conflate, you know, the narration at times. And also, of course, the present tense with the past and the future. But thinking about like this desire to be on the move again is something that I think comes across really quite early in A and B and also nothing, but I think is part of these sort of notebook poetics, these sort of durational poetics in which I've told students that I think at the beginning of the pandemic, when we were at least in New York City sheltering in place, I don't think I've ever had writer's block, but it was the closest thing to writer's block because I so often compose on the move, like when I'm on the subway, as one often is in New York City. And I felt that I couldn't write because I was actually confined, right? I couldn't get out. I couldn't move around. I do a lot of my best writing, if not on the subway, than when I'm running. There are incompleted, necessarily fragmentary thoughts that usually never make it into a published book. And I also wanted to kind of hold those up too in a legible kind of way. But I'm, yeah, I'm just sort of, I'm, I'm still, I've always been attracted to that. And I think maybe one of the reasons why I'm interested in only producing these kind of books is to kind of continue to pursue that fascination. I was going to ask you about a couple of other you know, precursors of yours. And, I, and then it occurred to me that maybe precursor is the wrong word for the way that you engage with dead authors, that maybe they're, to use your phrase, relics from the future. And that, or maybe this is the reverse, that they're like spaceships from the past. But I'm thinking here, of course, of uh, Henry James and Gertrude Stein. Yeah. And I wonder if, if you could you know, give our listeners a preview of how those two play such a big role in this book. Yeah, I think I got really lucky because this project is obviously very personal, very familial too, uh, talking about the, the many different ways I'm held in, and this idea of passing in, in many different contexts, whether ethnically, sexually, et cetera. But, but I got really lucky, I say that, because I happened to be reading. So this was actually composed at, at first as like a weekly <laughs> writing response that just in that list-like fashion, again, I think it just kept growing and I couldn't put an end to it. Originally, the um, each kind of like section or uh, chunk of language of consciousness was actually numbered. And the numbers, it, it got quite unwieldy to say like 405, <laughs> 406. All of this to say I got lucky because my uh, intended presentation, and I'm, I'm always so... Uh, enthusiastic. So I signed up to go first in, in Wayne Custom's James and Stein class was on Henry James second, I believe, second novel, The American, in which the main character is named Christopher. And it didn't even dawn on me that like my, my full name's Christopher, but it did that dawned on me. It didn't dawn on me that what I was doing was not just rewriting the American, but rewriting conception of American identity. And really also thinking about like the exclusionary constructs of citizenship and what does it mean to belong in any number of contexts, et cetera. But at the outset, I think I just got really lucky that the timing was that I happened to be looking at my own life and locating my own subject position within the American. And at the same time, we were reading a few uh, of Gertrude Stein's uh, longer poems, one of which was the Americans and also then the making of the Americans. And I think, you know, one of the things that just 
came about too. My father's name is Juan. My mother's name is Zosha, but translated into English is Sophie. And so thinking about J and S, they became like family to me, uh, Gertrude Stein and, and Henry James. And they became, you know, as, as Gertrude Stein has said, you know, the mother of us all, she became a sort of figure for me to identify with to, and also literally for me to insert myself into that sort of trajectory of modernism and to find a place. Cause I think that, you know, part of what I think among the things, among the many threads cast into orbit in a and also nothing, I think is like, is there a place for this kind of writing? And also is there a place for the avant-garde that again is historically coded like white and male. Right. And I was just talking about this just yesterday, last night, actually with another fabulous uh, young poet, uh, Jay Gao. And, you know, he's kind of new to New York City, but he's in the PhD program now in Columbia. And, and as a newcomer into the literary scene in New York City, I kind of confided in him that I, when I first started writing and publishing and attending readings in New York City, a lot of this stuff I'm, I'm learning, I have to be learning on the fly. And so I think at the same time to call into question these ideas of belonging that are so often tied to filial membership. And I think there's a point in outdated traditions, um, and there's a point in A and B and also nothing where I say I want to ex- escape the family for the infinite, right? For this sort of collective membership that has nothing to do with inheritance, that has nothing to do with ownership. And and I was going to say, as much as Stein and James are animating figures for this entire fantastic book, as you visualize this and it and it comes to the page, is there sort of like this neural network of these figures and these voices that that end up shaping kind of the multiplicity of influences and expressions that are here. Do you visualize this in some way, or is it all more of a flow that kind of is only recognizable after it's out on the page? Once it comes out, definitely. And this, I think is true no matter what it is you're writing, whether it's this kind of combinations and notebooks or anything else. But the text, obviously, right, it seems to often teach you about something that you nevertheless would have never known if you didn't write it down, right? So there is this distance, but also this kind of instruction in which the text starts to teach you about what it is that you that you did as, as a creator, as a maker. One of the things that uh, I'm constantly learning from is my students. And I think one of the things that I ask my students to ask themselves, where am I in the stories I read or watch or listen to? And I think that is in a way a question that's not in A and B and also nothing, but something that I had to ask myself in order to, in that sort of Jose Esteban Munoz kind of way, disidentify with James and Stein in order to create a different kind of American, right? Because I think so often, not just visually, but I think cinematically with like thinking about tailoring and the detail and jump cutting, my influences are not specifically authors at the moment, but often looking at at directors and, and even musicians like Brian Eno. I think one of the things that I was... I've never separated in my life. And there's a lot of things I don't like to separate and compartmentalize, but it's also a critical theory in academia, because I think one of the things that I've always actually felt the PhD program informed my creative writing in a way that I think oftentimes when creative writers are thinking about enrolling in a PhD program, they're most worried about like not just the time and effort, but how that will pull away from their creative writing. And I and actually found the opposite to be true. I think that I wouldn't be able to produce not just specifically this book, but everything that I have that I'm working on, that I'm working through, uh, that'll be published in the next few years. I I couldn't do that without um, being in a PhD program. So it's a privilege and and a luxury as well. 
I was thinking of Sardui earlier in our conversation, specifically written on a body, which I think is a magnificent book. And it was one of the things that William Gass was most insistent that I read. He introduced me to Sardui, and I'm incredibly thankful for it. But it brings us back to the subject of the body. And, you know, we were recently talking to a Chicago poet named Carlo Matos. And Carlo is an MMA fighter, as well as a professor, as well as a poet. Yeah. But where Carlo is a, is a poet and a professor and a MMA fighter, you're a editor and a theorist and a instructor and uh, a writer and sought after male model. Um, and these are not uh, typical combinations. And I wonder how much the production of image, how much the production of the externalized self, how much the performance of identity, whether it's passing or global, informs you know these very serious contemplations on identity that uh, you bring forth in this book and in much of your other writing. Yeah, thank you. I And I think that's where also like the sort of intimate, erotic and voyeuristic qualities of my work come through. But I'm always aware of and trying to, in fact, stage vantage points from which to have glances with imagined or assumed readers or encounters. And I think thinking about, you know, how that connects, because again, it's 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 a kind of circulation in a way. It's, it's a kind of migration. There's a moment in A and B and Also Nothing where I talk about the ways that I was starting to travel the world as a commodity, like in, in advertisements and magazines and on underwear boxes. And yet I was not moving, but I couldn't talk about that on, unless I also talked about the sort of rheological incongruencies with migration and the people that have to stay in place, right? And all that sort of the hierarchies, the hierarchization of, of movement. But yeah, I think it's driven my work. I think I'm often writing about it, maybe not as explicitly as I try, as I was kind of intending to do after almost your invitation or challenge. And it really made me think even again, the parameters we put on genre, right? And, and form, I think, I, again, I never went to an MFA program, but when I did get a, a master's at Fordham before I went to the Graduate Center, they made you choose whether you were interested in poetry and, and prose. And I think that's, so first of all, it's <laughs> it's asinine, but also it's so common. I mean, I think that there's a lot of these kind of factories producing a specific kind of writing. Again, I think maybe one of my self-conscious goals is to get outside of that. To sort of come back to the beginning of the text that isn't there, right? The things that we can't say or that we say other things in the place of, we're not really allowed to walk around talking about our own beauty, right? The way you can't really walk around talking about any number of, of privileges, right? And I wonder if your sort of physical nature and your attractiveness privilege is what is not written and is always written in these books, that you're not addressing it head on, but instead you're creating something beautiful in the texts themselves. And that there is this kind of unmentionableness of your body, even as you're creating another body. And that there's a highlighting of the mind quite literally at work with across all these references. And I, I wonder if, if beauty has been the subtext. I wonder if that's part of what's happening that makes this book so mesmerizing. Yeah, there's this moment in A and B and Also Nothing where I kind of talk about the distinctions between beauty and beautiful. And yeah, there's this moment, and I'm paraphrasing, so it'll come out wrong, but I kind of like that again, uh, is thinking about how beauty could be, you know, this idea about how re-envisioning how you see yourself and the people that you call home. Um, and I think that's really what it is. I mean, I and, and I, you know, I talk about shame 
a lot too in, in A and B and also nothing. I think it it's the flip side of that. Like how can we, you know, reorient the shame, humiliation, any kind of aspects of experience and hold it up and if not celebrate it, then kind of redistribute it as beauty, right? You've taught me something more about this text that again is in some way finished and then yet at the same time is just imminent in Unbound Edition. We're excited to publish it. And thanks so much for a beautiful conversation today, Chris. Thank you, Thank Chris. You. So excited about this book. It's so alive. May it long live. Thanks so much for listening today. This has been Authors Unbound. You can find us anywhere you locate your favorite podcasts, whether that's Apple, Google, Alexa. Go out there and find us. Search for Authors Unbound or ask to have it played. Thanks for listening.